Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of Encompass. Go to encompass-europe.com for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Jonathan Portis. Jonathan Portis is Professor of Economics and Public Policy at King's College London and is widely regarded as a leading expert in the field of immigration and migration issues. And recently you've published a quite a long essay where you talk about many of the some of the paradoxes about immigration. You say that um, the immigration debate in British politics has become somewhat confused and complicated. What made you, what made you say that? Well, I think the, the, one rem the remarkable thing perhaps uh, about what's happened um, since the Brexit referendum, which is the focus of my essay, the, the last four years, is that um, almost everything has changed, but nothing has changed. Uh, so as of now, uh, the UK still has pretty much the same immigration system it had in 2016 uh, with a relatively restricted of, uh, system of uh, essentially work permits for people coming from outside the EU um, and free movement uh, for people coming from uh, within the EU. Um, even though we left the EU, the transition period, which goes to the end of this year, means that free movement continues. So policy terms, very little has changed. Yet, the um, both in terms of what's actually happening to immigration and in terms of the nature of the political and policy debate, everything has changed. Um, first of all, we've seen a very, very sharp fall in net migration from the EU. Um, of course, now in the, during the COVID crisis, migration is probably essentially zero in both directions anyway. Uh, but even leaving that aside, before, even before the COVID crisis, we'd seen this really sharp fall in um, migration from the EU. In other words, both fewer people coming here from elsewhere in the EU uh, and some people moving back from the UK to their uh, original countries of origin. Um, even though free movement carried on, uh, the fact of the Brexit referendum itself made the UK a considerably less attractive people, uh, a place for people from the, uh, from the European Union, uh, for partly from, I think, just from psychological reasons, people feeling they were less welcoming, that the UK was a less European place, mm. um, but also for quite rational reasons about their future security and prospects. Um, at the same time, actually, migration from outside the EU has, if anything, although statistics are, are a bit dodgy, as if anything gone up somewhat. More people have been coming from outside the EU, in part to, to fill the holes in the labour market left by that fall in, in EU migration. Um, so we've seen this quite significant shift in migration trends, even though policy hasn't changed. Um, and we've also seen a really quite seismic shift in public opinion, um, uh, you know, of a scale which is, is quite not unprecedented, but very unusual on big political issues in the UK. So just before the referendum, immigration was the single most important issue on the Mori Issues in Index in British politics. It's now bobbing around ninth or 10th. Uh, essentially, it's nowhere um, in, the, uh, in the political debate. So immigration has gone from being a, if not necessarily the most important, one of the central two or three issues in British politics to being relatively peripheral. Um, at the same time, public opinion about immigration has also become quite a lot more positive, um, both on the economic implications and impacts of immigration and the broader social impacts of immigration. People are considerably more positive 
and that's taken place, you know, that, that's true within, in, in, in time series terms and over time, the UK has become more positive. It's also true compared to the rest of the EU. The UK has gone from being sort of in the middle of the pack in terms of how pro-immigration the public is to being rather on the, uh, the liberal pro-immigration uh, side of uh, 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 compared to compared to most other European countries, so there's a big big shift, and it's been shown across you know several different uh, public series of public opinion polls. So we're reasonably clear that this is something that's genuinely going on. The British public has become more pro-immigration, although, as I say in my article, uh, the reasons for that, what's driving it, and therefore what we should conclude about the future, are are, are hotly disputed and and frankly much less clear. Well, let's try and put this in a, in a bit of perspective, Jonathan. So you say four years ago, the salience of immigration was right up there at the very top. Was that irrespective of the upcoming referendum? In other words, if there'd been an election rather than the referendum um, in 2016 in June, there would also, that have been a major issue on the campaign trail for uh, the parties fighting in the general election. Um, it was partly about the referendum and it did spike up during the referendum campaign, but it was true before the referendum as well. Uh, not the most important issue, but one of the two or three most important. And that had been something that had been going on for quite a while. So I think it was certainly exaggerated and, and aggravated by the referendum, if you like. Uh, but it, uh, the referendum, the fact of the referendum itself was clearly not the only driver. As an expert in this field, are you, are you surprised by the speed with which this, this change has come about? It's only four years since the referendum. Seems like a longer time, maybe, but it is only four years. And the way you describe it, it is quite an extraordinary turnaround. Um, I am surprised. I certainly wasn't expecting it. Um, uh, and as I said, I think it's not completely unprecedented, but quite unusual in terms of the way the public opinion typically develops. It's, it has been quite a sharp shift in historical terms. I'm less surprised by the sharp fall in migration from the EU. I was expecting that, and I did forecast that shortly after the referendum. Uh, I think, you know, uh, it, migration is not driven simply by economics and the availability of jobs, which didn't change, you know, has changed. There, there, you know, the labor market, labor markets have also changed, and that explains part of the fall. Um, but psychological factors and the general sense of of what your whether you have a long term future in a country does matter a lot to people's decisions on whether to migrate. So I'm less surprised that we saw that quite sharp and, and large turn. We, we've seen net migration from the EU fall by something on the order of, of 150,000 a year. So that's a pretty big fall. But, but that, I think, is less of a surprise. And I did predict that. Okay, we're not going to spend too much time, I promise, raking over the, the, the referendum campaign. Uh, we're going to look to the future and the UK's attempts to build a new immigration policy post-Brexit. But before we move on to the kind of the future, I mean, it was said many times during the campaign and since uh, the referendum that... Um, by and large, the UK were not, were not anti-immigrant, they're just anti-immigration. <laughs> and mm. that they wanted to have this sense of, of control, right? And they weren't so, so, so much exercised by the numbers. There's this, this feeling of powerlessness that nobody had any control of the numbers coming in. Is that a fair assessment? And, is that, and have people's concerns about that been assuaged since, uh, since the referendum four years ago? Um, I mean, I think it's a great mistake to generalise that if there was some, sort of some one representative British person <laughs> Um, I think all, all the research evidence on this suggests that you know you can divide people into groups. There is a um, 
a group of people who are quite pro-immigration in general, liberals like me, to be honest, who are, who are both economically and socially liberal and then are both relaxed about immigration from a social point of view and also think it's economically beneficial. Uh, there are on the other end of the spectrum people who are just racist and just don't like foreigners. Uh, that is a minority, but let's not pretend it doesn't exist. Um, there is, um, there are um, people who are concerned about the cultural impacts of immigration, but think it's economically beneficial. And then there are also people who, who uh, um, um, actually are quite relaxed about people from a different background, but are worried about the um, economic implications or pressure on public services. Um, and then, as I say, there, there certainly is a significant group who, as you say, are more concerned about control sovereignty. Um, issues. I think probably the the significance and extent of that group has been somewhat exaggerated in the sense that I think there really are relatively few people who actually, um, on immigration or any other issue, quite frankly, say to themselves, I'm genuinely relaxed about what the actual what actually happens on this issue or what the what what the decision is or what the policy is. All I really care about is that it's um, MPs in Westminster deciding it, not bureaucrats in Brussels. There are some people in the commentariat and political bubble who genuinely believe that. But I think among the broader public, and even actually honestly, even among the commentariat, the number of people who genuinely believe that, who actually genuinely take that uh, that stand is, is relatively small. Um, so I think perceptions of control matter, but the idea that, that people would change their mind about immigration solely because of control and not because anything actually changes as a result, I think is relatively small. Okay, so, so to, to, to sum up, the numbers have gone down quite significantly since 2016, the referendum, uh, point one, point two, the salience of the issue has gone down in people's own personal rankings from, from, from one down to nine or 10, as you say. Uh, but then this, I'm intrigued by this, this great appreciation of the role of immigrants in, in British society, both economically and culturally, as you say now in, in your article. Uh, why do you think that has come about? Is it all down to COVID-19 and um, a more appreciation of the, of the broader care sector? It's definitely not down to COVID-19 because almost all of this polling data predates COVID-19. Right, okay. I saw some data just yesterday uh, produced by my colleagues at the King's Policy Institute uh, um, with British Future, a think tank, which shows that trend has um, increased a little bit as as a you know since COVID nineteen and probably as a result showing what you said, but the vast majority of that movement actually happened pre COVID nineteen. So it's not a COVID nineteen thing. Um, what is it? Well, there are competing hypotheses. Um, one hypothesis is that it is because simply because of the reduction in uh, EU migration since the referendum, people are more positive. Um, that's a bit hard to square given that non-EU migration has gone up by not quite as much, but by a very substantial amount at the same time. Um, a second hypothesis is that it's this idea of control. Um, that also is a bit difficult to accept given that as yet, as I said in my introductory remarks, um, we haven't got control yet, um, and indeed free movement continues for another six months. Right. Um, uh, finally, I mean, the, the hypothesis which I personally find, I mean, and, and, but there probably is some truth in both of those. Um, the hypothesis that I think is most plausible, but it, but, you know, I would not regard as proven by any means, is the combination of, of reduced media attention and particularly negative media attention. So that it's not that 
newspapers, especially pro-Brexit, right-wing newspapers have become <laughs> pro-immigration, but the, the volume and virulence of the number of anti-immigration and anti-immigrant stories that they publish has dropped off a cliff by any measure. Um, and, that's, and, do you know, and do you know why that is happening or has happened? Well, one way, one view is that it was purely uh, um, instrumental. They, uh, they saw it as a way to, uh, um, to, to, to boost the, the vote for Brexit and they see that as job done and therefore there's less to worry about. Um, there was, I think, something of a reaction um, among uh, um, in the public against just how nasty and unpleasant some of the coverage was. Uh, but also, I think that the focus on the implications of Brexit um, did shift the focus of what the media has reported from, as you said, to, um, you know, Europeans coming here and taking our, our public services and benefits to, um, in the future, Europeans won't come here and work in the NHS and in our care homes. Uh, and that's partly just to do to, with the fact that media... Um, and, and this applies across the political spectrum, um, on the whole, tends to focus on the negatives. So if the negatives pre-2016 were that all these immigrants were coming here um, to uh, scrounge off us one way or another, um, now the negative spin is post-Brexit, uh, there's a risk that all these, that the immigrants won't come here to do the jobs that we actually need them to do. And, and that's, uh, you know, uh, that becomes a story. And, and there's certainly been quite a, you know, and not just in The Guardian, but in, but in other newspapers, there have been stories about threats to the care sector, to the agricultural sector, to the NHS, and, and so on. Okay, well, that's a great cue then to move on, uh, Jonathan, to the future, if you like, or the present and the future, certainly, which is about the, the UK's uh, uh, attempts to in, introduce a, a rational and uh, uh, clear and coherent and understandable immigration policy, which at the moment is 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 not the case. A lot of people are confused by what on earth is going on. And you'd be the first, I think, to say that in order for a global Britain, an outward-looking Britain post-Brexit to fulfil its potential, I'm sort of weighing my words as I say this, it has to have a pretty open uh, and, uh, I wouldn't say less say fair, but quite open immigration policy, surely. I think that's right. And it's interesting to trace the evolution uh, since the referendum of the policy direction of the government. So um, immediately after the uh, um, referendum, Theresa May became prime minister. And Theresa May, of course, was a Remainer. Um, but Theresa May was by far the most restrictionist and anti-immigration home secretary and then prime minister that we've had in the past couple of decades. So the May agenda was very much about um, ending free movement with the, with the EU post-Brexit, but at the same time maintaining as a restrictive policy as possible towards people coming from outside the EU and then simply extending that to, uh, to, uh, to EU citizens in future. So it was the, uh, um, uh, a clear move towards a much more restrictionist system for people coming from the EU um, while maintaining a relatively restrictionist one towards people from outside the EU. And it's clear that's what she wanted and that uh, um, she would do her best to achieve that within the, uh, um, the political constraints she faced. Um, when Boris Johnson, um, um, you know, now over time, as her position got weaker um, and those of people who'd been on the Brexit side of the referendum got stronger, um, the policy moved much more, not to a laissez-faire policy, but to 
what I would say uh, regarding the, the position of a, 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 a the sort of economic liberal position. So what's the economic liberal position? Well, let's assume that you, um, you know, if you're not going to have either open borders or closed borders, then you need a system which lets in some people uh, and doesn't let in others. I'm talking about work for, for work for economic migration purposes in this case. So if you're not going to have open borders or free movement with a subset of countries, as with the EU, then you have to have a system which does select. If you're a liberal, small l, especially if you're an economist, um, then the natural way to do that is to let the market do it one way or another. And the way that in practice, most countries do that they, when they're trying to adopt this sort of market oriented approach is to have some sort of salary quali based qualification, because then the market is telling you who the mo quote, most valuable people unquote, are. Um, and that was the direction of travel really for uh, um, under the second half of the May regime and early on in the Johnson regime. Um, and that does, to some extent, appeal to economists, because if you're going to have restrictions, let the market do it and, and, and try and uh, um, get government and bureaucrats largely out of the way. The, and, and that, indeed, is the sort of system that was implied by some people on the vote leave, in the vote leave camp um, before, the, uh, before the referendum. Uh, the issue, however, is that this really isn't a free market government. Um, you know, actually, the Johnson agenda is, in many respects, very interventionist, quite state-led. Um, you know, there even is pre, even pre-COVID nineteen, it was interventionist. Even pre-COVID nineteen, absolutely. Leveling up is an explicit repudiation of the idea that the market can be left to sort out the geographical and spatial allocation of activity in the uh, in the UK. Um, the government's desire in the Brexit negotiations to preserve above all else its freedom to um, give state aids and subsidies um, uh, once we leave in a way which it can't within the constraints of the EU. Again, this is not uh, something that uh, um, Mrs. Thatcher would have tied in a ditch for quite the opposite. Um, uh, and so uh, I think the immigration uh, you know, the future immigration system is now in question a bit because of that. Because, you know, if you're serious about industrial policy, if you're serious about leveling up, if you're serious about ensuring that our health and social care sectors are properly staffed, that, you know, then that pushes you away from this purely salary-based, market-based approach to migration. And I don't think the government has sorted out its line on this uh, yet. Just to highlight one obvious example of the way in which the proposed new immigration system, uh, as it currently stands, conflicts with the levelling up agenda. If you set a salary threshold of £30,000, or, or sorry, and the new proposals of £25,000, um, as under the current proposals, um, that effectively means that most jobs in London, certainly all middle-skilled jobs and above in London are defined as skilled jobs that um, a migrant from anywhere in the world could, in principle, come to the UK, come to London to do. Um, so if you're a London-based business, you're looking at this new system and thinking, actually, this looks pretty liberal uh, and open from our point of view. Um, if you are a manufacturing firm in Wales looking for a skilled machinist, not at all clear you can get that person 
for a, a year. Not at all clear that you're paying that person £25,000. That's not necessarily the market wage. Similarly, in a number of other bits of the country where, where, where the levelling up agenda is precisely designed to apply. Um, so you are effectively, potentially, exacerbating the existing con uh, concentration and agglomeration of well-paid, skilled jobs and well-paid, skilled people in London at the expense of the rest of the country. Now, that is not levelling up. Um, and that is why other countries um, that use migration partly as part of industrial and regional policy have special arrangements um, for disadvantaged or rural or sparsely populated regions. They say you can come to Australia or Canada if you're prepared to locate to these places for two or five years or whatever. That's not in the current proposals. Um, and it's certainly not, you know, it's not what the market wants. Um, but if you're serious about levelling up, it's hard to see how the proposed system is, is really going to work. Well, I was going to ask you, Jonathan, as a final question, but you've already answered it, which was um, how optimistic are you or about a coherent uh, and sensible immigration policy being put together by the British government before the end of transition in the end of the year? But I think you've already answered that question. You're not. Uh, you've very least pointed to the inconsistency. So let me rephrase the question uh, in this way. Since we are, we've left the EU, the transition period, I think by all agreement, is, uh, is going to end at the end of this year. So what needs to be done between now and then for the government to address the kind of the concerns you've raised. I mean, it has been known to, 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 to execute U-turns. Is it going to change its mind in this area again, like in other areas of policy? Well, I mean, I think it, it's really actually quite hard, you know, given if transition does indeed end on, and, and, and we're in um, either uh, um, no deal or, or even a relatively limited trade deal with the EU post January the 1st, you know, then the government is, is sort of stuck. It has to have a new system. Free movement will end. Mm -hmm. There's no way around it. Uh, free movement will have stopped. Um, so uh, we, do, we will need a new system. Um, and in that sense, I think the most urgent question for the government is not actually about getting the finer details of the policy right, but simply about the implementation challenges. You think about what a university or a multinational business will be thinking about in September, October, when it comes to recruit people, you know, we would be recruiting people, um, you know, now to start in January, certainly in September, October, people to start in January. Um, at the moment, we have no idea what the system, you know, what forms we'll have to fill out and, and all the rest of it. So, um, and the, you know, the government is, has a lot of other things on its plate with COVID-19. Um, so the sheer implementation challenge of getting a system up and running are the most immediate problem the government faces. And I think this really, you know, this is not just a short-term issue. Mm. The most visible and obvious change for much of the world about the UK post-Brexit will be the new immigration system. Um, so if you're serious about global Britain, you need to have it up and running, and up and running in a way that works for, for businesses, for universities, and so on, on January the 1st. If you don't, if the first thing that people from Japan um, or the US or India see on January the 1st, 2021, is that the Home Office website is crashed and there's no actually valid form for which they can get in their, their managers to come and work in the UK, that's going to be a pretty terrible advertisement for global Britain um, and that will do significant and long-lasting reputational damage. So it's really important the government gets this right.
Okay, well, on that suspenseful note, Jonathan, we have to leave it there. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Paul.